Hey, it's Jay. Unthinkable is about one very simple but very hard to execute idea, trusting your intuition. In a world full of average content, you can be exceptional by being the exception. And you are an exception thanks to your own person, your own ability to think and act for yourself. That is your intuition. But then we go to conferences or read blogs or listen to podcasts and we get a list of instructions from some expert. Here's exactly what to do to solve all your problems, to fulfill all your wildest dreams, to succeed at the highest of levels. And that stuff only gets more tempting the more things change all around us. We feel the ground moving and we want to cling to something that feels firm. But the missing piece in all that is you, your context, your team, your specific situation. It's all slightly different than the generic conventional wisdom. And if you just executed against that, you'd be an exception. You'd be exceptional compared to all the average who follow the convention. So today, we're continuing our Every Other Week series in partnership with Content Marketing World. We talk to speakers who often deliver that great advice, but we want to zoom into their specific contexts. Who are they? And what is it about them, not their marketing knowledge, that makes their work great? Because the advice is a wonderful starting point, but to truly get to the other side of that giant leap from average to exceptional, you need to use you. This is Marketers You Know, Stories You Don't. Today, it's my marketing kindred spirit, Doug Kessler. We try to bring the psychographic component into all of our kind of early persona work or targeting work so that we can make a case for uh, the kind of emotional content or the emotional component of the content which will resonate with these people. Doug is the co-founder and creative director of Velocity Partners, an agency known for its breakthrough and really creative ideas in B2B content marketing. Now, Doug clearly loves the work and his team, but let's say he was interviewing for another job. This is the interview question I'd most want to ask him. If I gave you enough money to support your lifestyle for two years. Nothing changes in your world. You have enough money. But to earn this money, you have to write a personal blog. And it can be about literally anything you want. What would you write about and why? Ooh, that is a really good one. Jeez. Oh, I'm going to hate whatever I answer because it's going to be one of those things, you know, on the way down the stairs tonight. I'll go, no, no, Jay, I want to write this one. (laughs) There are so many I would love to write. I mean, I mean, I like, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell stuff where he digs into business stories and finds really wonderful stories in there. So I could always do that. I could try, I could maybe um, chase down some business heroes and just try to figure out how they work. That might be cool. Or it might be fuck business and do it on the creative front and think, you know, my writers that I absolutely love, spending time with them and figuring out what makes them work. Um, so a blog about that would be interviews with great writers could be a terrific thing. I'd love that. You know, some little things that like there's a screenplay that's been hitting, um, knocking around my head. So it could be a blog about the development or the failure of that. <laughs> um, that would be a fun one. I'm giving too many, aren't I? Oh, no, this is pick- awesome. Well, well so yes. the reason I ask that question when I when I do interview people to to hire for writing, you know, in past jobs where I had had a boss and had a had an employer, um, was not to see what they said. Like I wasn't looking for them to say. Like a bad answer would be, oh, I'd write about content marketing and email optimization and all that stuff. And I'm like, no, you wouldn't. No. Mm. Like, it's great that you love that stuff by day. But but what would you write about as a person, right? Like, what's the underpinning yeah. stuff about you that makes you love 
yeah, marketing or content. Um, and so yeah, I wasn't looking a- for the specific answer. I was looking for their emotional reaction. All I wanted to see was that somebody immediately lit up and told hmm. me endlessly, like you did, about hmm. these topics because it showed me that they had the motor to write. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Need interview question. I might use that. <laughs> Steal away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we spoke a while ago about the fact that you uh, have worked on some documentaries outside of marketing that maybe not a lot of people know about. Can you tell us about that process? Like, what was the topic and, and why did you work on those things? Sure. Yeah. So the first one was, so I've always loved the history of the book. I love books. I love books as physical objects. I love type and printing, but a certain kind like private press printing that's really quite, you know, high quality, beautiful printing. And I even like the paper and bindings and stuff like that. I just love books. So there is a book artist. He's a wood engraver and he's a type designer and he's a typographer and bookmaker called Barry Moser. And I heard he was embarking on this massive project, which was to do a Bible. And even though I'm not particularly religious, the history of printing is kind of, is, you know, you could walk the whole history of printing on the spines of great Bibles. They're just these famous, wonderful productions from Gutenberg right up through kind of Oxford lectern Bibles. And so I hear he's going to do this. And um, I think my wife just said, oh, that'd be a good film. And I went, ding. So I, I like Barry Moser. I haven't even met the guy, but I love his work. He did, a, you know, some beautiful, well, wonderful books. And so I talked to my brother, who's a filmmaker, and it's like, yeah, why don't we approach the guy? And we did, and we ended up following him for two years. I, you know, I was still living in the UK. He's in Northampton, Massachusetts. Jace is in New York. So I probably made seven, eight trips over the two years it took him to make this book, uh, watching it, interviewing him, the binders, the printers, the guys who funded it, everything. And it was called A Thief Among the Angels. And it was one of the most fun things I've ever done. It was just so much fun working with Jace, my brother. And we're just like, we're very twin-like in our thinking and decision-making. It was like never a disagreement about an issue. Um, It was a lot of discussions about things, but we always came out at the same same place. So that was fun. Meeting Barry was fun. We became great friends. Seeing this wonderful thing happen and take shape. Meeting all the other great artists who were involved in it was just amazing. It's like, wow, this documentary thing is a ticket to meeting your heroes or just super interesting people or both. And um, one of the guys we interviewed on the way is called Matthew Carter, who's a type designer. And he um, he's an English guy who's kind of distinguished in that he's probably worked in every kind of type in history. So he did, he started his career cutting metal type, you know, and then into digital and photo and, and everything else, photo then digital. So he was so interesting in the first film that we're like, we're coming back for him. We got to do a Matthew Carter. And we did another documentary about him, which again was just so much fun. My other brother Lee got involved. So now the three of us are having fun on road trips, meeting this cool guy and uh, learning everything about type design. So much fun. And the guy, Matthew Carter, is just spectacularly smart, charming, intelligent, articulate, open, sharing everything he knows about type design with us. And so two just hugely fun projects that zero commercial potential, but a ton of joy. To me, I feel like we need more of that thinking in in our work as marketers, where we kind of throw out the self, start at the extreme of what the hell will others like? It doesn't matter. Yeah, clickbait works. I'll do it. Right? Like, mm. where, where do you find you as an individual 
play into, you know, on the stuff you like, play into your writing and your work with clients? For me and that, you know, the film projects I talked about with my brothers, we kind of thought if we can discover the joy and the interest and the fun in this stuff, we hope there will be people like us, not so much starting as geeks like I was, but they didn't know that there was so much cool stuff to know about books or about type um, and that we would open that up for them. That was the hope. But I think, yeah, we didn't want to go through the thing of getting commissioned by a TV company or any of that. And we ended up getting some on PBS and, and, you know, getting it in, in festivals, winning some awards, but we, we didn't want to go through a commissioning process of convincing someone else there's an audience for this. We just wanted to make it. And, and I feel like if you bring that, it's not that making something I just want to make necessarily makes something better. But I think what, what it triggers is I find joy in the process of doing it itself, regardless of the end results. And I think that makes the thing better and probably gets you better end results. Totally believe that. And the other magic to it is you literally cannot fail. (laughs) I mean, we could not fail in either of those projects. We could have made shitty films, but we were having fun from day one. And we had fun every day doing it. And, you know, of course, there's some, you know, ups and downs in any project. But, yeah, you can't lose if that's your attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, if we were measuring it by, is this a hit, we'd have been disappointed. Neither of them, but, you know, neither of them. I wouldn't even say sunk from view because they were never in view. (laughs) They they are pretty invisible projects. But, but hey, they were big wins. I I love doing them. And um, I think maybe a little more like if we bring it more closer to our world and content marketing Mm -hmm. and things like that, I think you're right that the the fact that it was joy and fun and we were um, serving our own desires and curiosities would have multiplied its chances of being successful. It's a messy kind of like ball of yarn mentally to figure this out because like the stuff that we're asked to create for work to get results isn't always the stuff that we just love the process of making. And, yeah. and so that probably gets you a worse product, in this case content, to generate the results but then on the flip side the stuff we do for fun we do light up we do insert more of our personalities which makes it probably better because we just love the process and yet those are the things that we don't often you know we don't have a boss or a client or somebody telling you you need these results by this time frame and it's like i'm trying i don't know how to make sense of that because i want the thing that gets results and the thing that gets results is usually the thing i love to create but the thing i love to create is not the thing people ask you know what i mean like it's this yeah totally but i mean for us i really want to love what i do whatever it is and if what it is here is an ebook to for cios on data management or if it's that how can I make this a great one? How can I enjoy it? Like, where will I find my own curiosity? And where, and what will make me really be interested in this? And so for us, Velocity Fun is a huge guide. And if it isn't fun, we're probably doing it wrong. If we really think this is a drudge project on a drudge client or topic for and something we don't think will work, we just can't do that. We've got to find yeah. a way to pivot into a zone where we're enjoying it. And it's, it's very much a results-oriented thing. I mean, as you say, we know it's going to work better if we find that zone. For me, they don't have to be mutually exclusive, um, but it, it, you know, it can be hard work to find the thing. But like what maybe what some people just assume that that joy or fun is not going to be there, so they don't ask it of the project. 
Um, I think we should all ask it and ask our clients to ask it. It's like, no, let's make this great. How do we really find the juice here? And that kind of thing's contagious. Like if we go into a client who maybe isn't even all that excited about their own stuff, but we get excited and go, that that is a great story. Let's tell that. You know, people are like, yeah, it is. It really is. Let's do it. It is contagious. And I think it's the alternative is kind of unthinkable. I know that's that's your your phrase, but the <laughs> the alternative is well, really you're just going to go through the motions and there's no heart there. You know, yeah. that that feels unthinkable to me. Yeah, yeah. We it's funny we use unthinkable also in a negative sense, but it's as if spoken by somebody looking at your work as a content mm. creator. Like the origin of that name, uh, just to clarify, it is you know there's a lot of average stuff. And there's yeah. a lot of advice that sounds like absolute. And if you follow it to a T, you will create more sameness. And yeah. uh, so why not try to be exceptional, not average? Because when you're exceptional, like look at the word, you are an exception. Uh, and I think the best way to do that is to just insert more of who you are into your work. And so much of that stuff that gets you there, others mm. would look at and be like, it's unthinkable that you would do it that way. Like it's it's yeah. more practical to say, let's generate more leads through our content than to say, create the sports center of our niche. No, I love that approach. And I think it's really, you know, it is compelling. And I just think even if it's a minority interest, like, you know, my thing about books or type is not a majority interest. But if you go for it and are passionate, I love people like that. I mean, you know, people tease people with minority interests like train spotters or stamp collectors. Like, oh, they're not, they don't like a majority thing. They're not into whatever the hell the majority interests are now. <laughs> and I don't even know. I'm so out of it. But um I, those are my people. It's like, don't be ashamed or embarrassed by that. Go for it. Dig deep. And actually, it's magnetic. And so if you find someone who's in that zone, it's a magnet. It's like pheromones to other people who want to love their work. You know, For me, there is a, a very hard-nosed um, rationale for the stuff we're talking about, even though it sounds touchy-feely to to some people in the business world. Yeah, you know, and it doesn't have to be topical either. I think that's where like CMOs or executives typically say, well, we can't do that because, you know, we want to reach the people that care about this topic. It's, or you know, mm. it's marketing, it's data collection or whatever, but it can be the emotional tilt or the style, you know, unthinkable as a show, the other episodes are documentary style, not interviews. And so, yep. you know, they're still about the topics marketers care about, but only the marketers who have a certain belief, which is, you know, there's a depth to what we do. There's a meaning and an emotion. If you don't care right. about that, you're just going to want a, a glorified tips and tricks blog post spoken to you. And, and that's just yep. not the type of person we're trying to reach. So it, there's all these yep. ways to find those minority interests or periphery interests. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to just be topic, which I think opens up yeah. the possibilities for you as a, as a brand. Yeah. And part of that is, um, this psychographic targeting we're big believers in, which is, okay, yeah. you might know the demographics and firmographics, but there's a kind of person you want to resonate with. Most companies have that target. And so it's, all right, well, let, what would resonate with them? You know, what in us is like that person? And, you know, for our tech companies, because we're mostly tech, it's a lot of disruption. They're looking for confident, ambitious, um, you know, people who want to change things and want to, you know, want to want to transform something. And they're restless and they're confident. And, you know, once you start thinking of them like that, you want to feed them content that will feed that, that is exciting right. and challenging, you know, not the same old stuff. So it always helps to have that. We try to bring the psychographic component into all of our kind of early persona work or targeting work so that 
we can make a case for uh, the kind of emotional content or the emotional component of the content, which will resonate with these people. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and lo- longtime listeners of the show, or even people who see my speech at Content Marketing World this year, like will hear me talk about like, it always starts with an aspiration. Like that's the first filter for me. It's if people, what, whether you're junior, senior, B2B, B2C, none of that matters to me. What matters is you, you're doing marketing, but you aspire to do something great. Like as long as you have that, it's like, okay, we can talk. If you're if you're just asking what tools to use for a podcast or, you know, the latest trend and how to just kind of do it and follow mm-hmm. the trend, it's not as aspirational. It's not something yeah. where, I, you know, you'll probably find much value from my show. I, I want to move on to your writing. I feel like a lot of people struggle with, with tone. To me as a writer, that's never been something I've sat down and, and thought through. And you mm-hmm. have a very strong tone in your writing. Is it something mm-hmm. you've ever been proactive and thoughtful about or are you just unhooking and unleashing when you write generally i really i kind of discovered it by unhooking and unleashing but i have had to make it a lot more conscious as we talk to clients about voice and why it's important i know you and your writing i think we're very similar in that way we have a similar voice and it comes from a similar place which is you know write how you speak tap into that passion for something mm-hmm. don't start until you do have the passion and believe and know what you're going to say and then look someone in the eye and go there and you know have fun so for me, the voice is a natural thing. Um, I, I guess there is a spectrum. So I have a, you know, different voices that you can pull out for different tasks. There is a the core one, but you know, there is some stuff in common of right how you speak. Um, you know, do your homework up front to know exactly what you'll want to say, so that you can be super clear. Hold the person by the hand and lead them through your story, and not let go, and not want make them not want to let go either. You know, so very linear. You know, so you structured it and it's built, and so those things come in. But I'm a huge believer in voice as a force multiplier, like a budget <laughs> multiplier in marketing, and I'm shocked how few companies want to go for that because it's right there it's got to be one of the easiest force multipliers there is not easy because um you know obviously you got to find some writers with talent to do it but all you have to do is want to do that and all of a sudden your business can change you know you can be that one in your market that has a voice it feels crazy to me that having seen how many businesses are successful based on voice or at least it's a huge part of it uh, you'd think, well, that's that's the go-to strategy, and I, I, I guess it's why a lot of a lot of our clients come to Velocity, which is great. I'm glad they come for that; it's a big deal. But I'm still shocked how many don't see it, don't want it, mm. get scared by that kind of voice. Yeah, I wrote an article uh, which is basically want more creative marketing. You need more sensitive marketers because I think sensitivity, mm-hmm. while it has a negative stigma about weakness or sadness, is really mm-hmm. you know as the word implies, you're you're in tune with the senses, it's, it's about openness. And I think yeah. when you're open to new possibilities or more generally the world and the way you are and the way things feel when they hit you, you can spit all that stuff back out more readily um, oh, yeah. versus if you're hardened, you're closed off, you start looking for uh, the facts of the case, like I'm writing this and the information yeah. is there, but it's void of yeah. humanity. Right, absolutely. And you know that the word empathy gets brought out a lot for marketing and rightly so. It's the thing. And we have found people who are talented wordsmiths, but the empathy is not quite there. So, you know, they're not in their audience's shoes or looking them right in the eye saying, "I need you to believe this idea. I need you to come with me through this story." And I get you enough to know what I have to say to make that happen um and to respect this audience, you know, not 
not assume that you know they owe you anything. Right. So that's a it's a weird one because I'm not sure how teachable empathy is. I think you kind of meet people who are empathetic and those who aren't, and um, I think it's it's a bit of a secret weapon. Yeah, I mean, it's you don't work on the skill, work on the person, right? It's like you you need to just be a self aware person to understand what your tone of voice is. Like if you're, you know, if you're living a healthy life or you're coming to work positive, that's going to show in your writing, Mm. you know, work on who you are and being aware of who you are, and then just own that when you write. I think we go, we go surface level too much, which is like, what are the tactics for, for employing or finding my tone of voice? And if you go deeper than that, tone of voice is just the way in writing, or for me in podcasting, that your person manifests. So do you know your person? Absolutely. And it's kind of bring your person like, you know, I can sometimes sit down with young writers or, or someone and, and look at the work and say that sentence. Do you really mean that? Do you believe that? I'm like, no, not really. So, hmm, how about this? Is that really where you're coming from? Is that interesting to you? Not really. So what is? Well, that. Well, write that. You know, yeah. so the first step is kind of like bring yourself to it. And yeah. I think what you were saying earlier, a lot of people just don't think that's part of the game. They think, no, myself's for weekends and evenings. My work is my work. But wow, what a tragedy if that happens. It's like, no, if you actually bring your full self yeah. and you sit in front of whatever it is, you find, A, you know, you got a lot more to bring to it. It's going to be way better, but you'll have so much more fun doing it too. Ah, this is why I'm doing this like mini series with an unthinkable. Like you just hit the nail on the head and drove it through the board. Forget into it. Just through it. Like if you just insert more of who you are into everything or at least reflect on who you are first and then use it. No one has access to that. You're trying to differentiate. You're trying to get attention from people. Nobody else has access to who you are. So Yeah, it's uh, the one thing you will be best at, too. It's like nobody else. The topic is the topic. Then there's the you. And, you know, the you is is your thing. So before we start singing Kumbaya, because we're we're dancing dangerously (laughs) close to that, uh, (laughs) is there, when you were building a business from scratch as an entrepreneur, uh, someone who started your agency, there must have been times that you can remember where you were doing work and you were like, I know this is pushing my business forward, but I'm not sure I, as Doug, love this. Like, can you recount any of those examples? It does definitely happen. And um, I once went to a talk by a really talented um, Swedish agency who just did stunning, stunning work. And someone asked in the audience, you know, do you do any dogs, any things you don't like the suck and they're boring and they're normal? And I'm sitting here like I got I like I, I kind of stiffened up like hoping and praying that he would answer it the way he thankfully did, which is instead of saying, no, 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 we don't stoop to that. We refuse. He went, sure, we just don't show. That. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> everybody's like everybody's like that, you know, and we were practical and maybe I'm too practical. There are definitely times I think I've spent too much time in my career kind of accommodating. I should have fought more. I should have. uh you know, I should have thr- thrown, like they, they call it, throw your toys out of the pram here. Is that a, I know I'm American, but I've lived here so long. It's a thing about throwing a little hissy fit to uh, have your way. What, what's the phrase? Throw, throw your toys out of the pram. What's the last <laughs> a word? Pra- pram? A pram is a book, is like a, um, a, a push chair or a, yeah, baby's push chair. Got it. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. no I, don't, I don't think we <laughs> use that here. Yeah. It's, it's a great phrase, but, um, That's awesome. you know, have a little fit about, no, I insist. Well, the, I, I am more practical, I guess, a bit service oriented. I don't like shoving something down the client's throat. I want them to want it and love it. If they don't, I don't feel that great about, you know, asserting and, and pushing it down their throats. There are times that what they need is my confidence in the idea, and I mm-hmm. owe them that if I have it. Um, so there is a point, like, 
we're in a service business. We need to give the client what they want. That's what we're here for. But our job is making them want the right thing. And we keep trying that. It's like, look, this one's dull. Can we try this? Can we try that? Can we try that? And if we keep failing on a given project, it might be, you know what? Let's just get this out of here. Let's do it as well as we can to the spec, to what they want. Let's get it over that threshold of client's quality level. And we know we have a higher one. It's going to fall between those two thresholds. Uh, we don't like living between those thresholds. It yeah. sucks. For yeah. talented, excited people, we have a great team here. They're demotivated by that. We need to get it above that higher threshold, our own. But it doesn't mean every single project. And there are times it's just way better to notice, you, just recognize you're going to lose, lose graciously, get the thing out, you know, do it as well as you can, but don't kill yourself over it. You try and then use all your energy and passion for the ones where you're aligned with your client. And if, um, you know, if it's not just a project problem, but a client pro problem where they, you just never align, well, it's just definitely a relationship that doesn't have a future and you might as well call it really. So, you know, you need clients who, who do have the same idea about what great is and want to go on the same journeys. So, you know, it's, very true we're practical about it sometimes i'm embarrassed by it think i'm wrong like i look at some great 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 creatives and think do they just refuse to compromise you know um but that's you know compromise is part of our world right right yeah there, i feel like there's there's two um fail safes maybe i don't know if that's the right word or stopgap like, like there's two ways that you can basically i think come away more often than not feeling proud of the work and, and like as a last ditch effort. One actually comes from a, an earlier episode of Unthinkable. We talked uh, that the title was 2% Better. And, and we explored this idea that for whatever reason, when you love the process of doing something, you will spend weird amounts of time like at home, at work, wherever, making it ultimately like just a little bit better because you're just obsessed with it. And uh, we talked to this agency leader. Her name was Michaela Vandermost, and she largely leads video producers. And she talked about how they'll do an agency cut, like a director cut, after a client project that they felt okay about. Or maybe they, they had a recommendation they didn't go for as a client. And they'll finish it if they feel like, you know, look, this could be a portfolio builder or a skill builder. They'll actually do their own cut, which I thought was really interesting because they do come away with they you know they've delivered the boring version to the client but they themselves feel fulfilled at the end of the day which is so important god i really like that idea yeah. i'm totally totally gonna steal that yeah there you go um, well, you we sometimes some have guy, right like you've stolen yeah you stolen my interview questions stolen michaela's director's yeah. cut like no. this is, yeah yeah constantly <laughs> ripping off yeah i'm gonna start a podcast called unthinkable um, <laughs> yeah I love, um, yeah, because often we'll have the cut, you know, it's, it got rejected and we had to kind of do some things that made it worse. Well, we've already got that. Why don't we share that one on our site or something? Yeah, yeah. Also, there are times you're right, you're, you're diverted away from that and you never got to finish yours. Well, why not? Go ahead. Right. That's a great idea because, um, yeah, we, you know, with talented people, we've got some super talented writers, designers, dev types, and they, if they could just see it fulfilled, that's yeah, that, I'm, I'm stealing that. Yeah, doing. yeah. So that's a that was a great one. The other one I just kind of concocted, which is I call it show your holster. So like what I think a lot of creative people do is um, rebel for rebellion's sake. I think there's part of the the kind of personality or the pride of of what the personality is, quote, supposed to be as a creative. You know, you're supposed to be 
quieter, you're supposed to be artsy, you're supposed, there's all these stereotypes, right? And I think sometimes we even play into that. And what ends up happening is you just sort of thumb your nose at a situation and, and just kind of in blunt fashion, reject something. You're like, no, like you, you, you pull out the whole gun and you start firing. You're like, this is terrible. You're terrible. This company's terrible, et cetera. Um, cause you're just so passionate about, about your craft. I, I think better is to just show your holster, just pull it out a little bit and kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I'm looking at you. Today, we live in this era where there's no gatekeepers. You can show what you're worth. You can make a thing in similar fashion on your own time and then show somebody and be like, look, this is what I'm talking about. Like, I want to make a documentary series for brands. Like, this is, you know, I told you before the show, what I aspire to do is be a host and producer of documentaries for brands. And I'm doing it every day I'm do- or every week and, and largely every day working on it. I'm releasing one into the wild. And right. uh, so I can show my holster. I can be like, look, this is the thing right here. I agree too. I think that's great. And one of the things we do at Velocity is we do a lot of in-house projects. We do a lot of in-house content, you know, stuff for us. And one of the reasons is obviously we want to stay a practitioner. The other is it grows our business. It actually weirdly turned out to be incredibly effective. <laughs> but um, a huge reason is just so that we can have those projects where we just go for, want to show people what good looks like. And so often it'll be like, look, we're not going to get anyone to buy this format unless we do a few. Or for us, a rant was one of our it's one of our core um, um, deliverables or That's core so genres. Good is to have this rant, a passionate rant about a topic. Well, we had to do one first. We did this one called crap, and it was a big old rant about a problem. And, a, you know, and it was emotional, but it was professional. You know, it's not stupid. And what we wanted to show clients is it's okay to get passionate about something, to hate something. I'm big on negative emotion. I, I really hate it when clients don't like going to the dark side. It's really cool to hate the obstacles to your customer's mm, success, yeah. right? That's something to hate. Um, you never want to be a, a brand with a chip on its shoulder, but you want to go for it and hate something. So a rant, we did a few before we sold any. And then soon we had clients briefing in rants, which was great. So that's kind of a holster issue too. That's awesome. Yeah, I started this show by ta- my the first article I wrote as I am going to create this show, come along if you'd like. I wrote how to work in marketing when you're bothered by suck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that one. I've, oh, great. Thank you. I, I just started using that. And, and that, you know, that to me has been transformative is like using negative emotion to just just be human. Like I dislike this. I'd like to solve this problem or I'd like this not to be the way of the world. Absolutely. It's one of my big pet peeves. It's like, oh, we can't do a negative headline. We can't do a negative. Can't we make it? It really, there's a book somewhere that marketing shouldn't be negative. I want to trace the source, find the author and hit him with the book. You know? <laughs> it so bothers me. It's like, what do you mean we can't be negative? Of course we can. You know? This episode brought to you by Content Marketing World. Content Marketing World does not condone the beating of other marketers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but this one guy. <laughs> this one guy. Um, I want to end on this segment that everybody's getting, which is called Alpha Beta Scale. It's basically treating your career like a product, a never-ending product that you're developing. And there are three stages I'd like to move through. So Alpha, as the name implies, is the earlier version of you. What yeah. is something from earlier in your life, be it a hobby, uh, an individual that influenced you, a moment in time that had a profound impact on your work today? My dad had a caption contest. Um, he would put a picture on the fridge and, and, and put a, like a lined legal pad under it and, and a pen, you know, and we just had to, you know, win the caption contest. And 
my brothers were older, so I have one brother who's 14 months older, one who's five years older. Huge advantages, especially when you're young, in being funny and articulate. And and so I never won. <laughs> you know, my dad was he would never he would never award something for something that wasn't better. Like, which is great. You know, I didn't want it for that reason because I was young and it was my turn. I wanted a winning caption, and. Uh, and I'd look at my brothers and I'd just be like, oh, man, they're so articulate. They're so funny. They're so acute. I didn't see that. So I was like, I was a competitive guy. And uh, it just was really motivational to me because I realized, you know, that act of, um, of honing and articulating and trying to dig into something in a fresh angle on a thing was um, really what I do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's a, that's an incredible childhood experience. I feel like my parents put up, you know, like these half-baked drawings of animals, like I would mash together like a tiger and an octopus, and they'd be like, that's <laughs> so great. And here yeah. you were actually honing like your writing jobs as a fan. Yeah, who knew, who knew I was, but it was, it was fun and challenging, and he was great that way. My dad was amazing <laughs> that way. That's awesome. So I think that we're all always in beta state. We're always a slightly unreleased, unfinished product. And so the beta question is today, what is something that you've learned recently that you think you'll carry with you? I was at a talk by George Saunders two nights ago, one of my favorite authors. He just put out a great book called Lincoln and the Bardo, his first novel after about five or six um, great short story collections. And as he was talking about why he avoided novels, uh, some things resonated. Well, one reason he did is he wrote the first thing he ever wrote was a novel, and it took him two years, and it totally sucked. His wife hated it within half an hour, and he just buried it and avoided it forever. And he had this idea for the new novel uh, 20 years ago, but just was scared of novels. He was scared, scared, scared. He he was a funny, funny writer, so most of his short stories, there's a great comedy element to them. Well, they're hilarious, a comedy element. They're, they're funny. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I think he had to give himself permission to write about things he deeply cared about and to let go of this kind of I'm the funny guy, which got him success, right? So there was something really meaningful for me there because I think I suffer from that a bit. I think uh, as a defense mechanism, I can, like, I'm scared of tapping into something that actually is deeply meaningful to me or I really care about. Um, like on stage, I'm like a really teary up well welling up crying guy like I, even if i get a little bit meaningful i get all blubby and embarrassed right so in the early days of my speaking career i would avoid anything i cared about you know because i'd be embarrassed and then i realized what a dumb strategy i'm just gonna have to take the hit for being that kind of guy and that was liberating and now i think i need that a little bit in my writing too of in this george saunders lesson of you really want to live that way? You really want to live avoiding the things you care most about? So that was pretty big. I, I can't say I put it into practice that it, enough to tell you how, how that's affected my life, but it definitely made a little like that bloop in a lake kind of feeling to it. I wish I'd talked to you about this earlier in my career. Like I think that was, it took me a while to get there too. And, and I think when mm -hmm. I started just letting my bleeding heart come out, like I do like the big dramatic endings to things and I'm very yeah. idealistic and kind of silly and goofy and like to joke around like those things were things i buried you know i i have yeah. videotape that i i don't share publicly of early speeches of myself where i'm like who is that guy that's not me yeah oh man my first my first public speaking thing i know we're running out of time you can edit this but the i, I was like the class speaker i was the class speaker of my high school graduation and i thought it meant oh that means i have to be clever and i so 
I tried to be clever and it was the worst experience of my, it's right up there with one of the worst of my life. It was so mortifying. I knew it was bad. It was during it. It was just the most embarrassing, cringy thing. So I did avoid speaking for public speaking for a lot of years. Um, but also it took me a while when I did get back to it to kind of get through this idea that it's about me being clever and get to something more important, you know, what can I do to help this audience or whatever it is something I care about and so yeah it's it's a hard one maybe for men too men are kind of taught to uh, hide some of that stuff so yeah I just feel like life's too short right we yeah. got to find a way into it yeah amen the scale question is looking ahead what what is something that you firmly believe about the future I am optimistic I believe the whole world's getting better and better and better and I know that there's you know the trajectory we're on there's also likelihood of um horrible shit happening i think you know current administration is a total blip in the in i hope a blip in the uh you know obvious progression towards better things so i think the world's getting better and better and better and better it's wonderful as a parent to believe that so i know i'm a motivated believer but i really do i think the world's getting better in all, most important ways there are some losses on the way and there's some setbacks we're in a setback phase politically right now but i do believe it's just that phase that there's an inexorable improvement in life that people if we don't totally screw the planet we're actually making things better for more and more and more and more people over time so um i don't come off i don't present as an optimist like most people think of me as a probably the opposite but um but actually in my heart i am i think the world's a a wonderful place to be and b getting better and better and better Special thanks to Doug Kessler. You can find him on the Twitters at Doug Kessler. Bit of an odd username there if you ask me, but uh, hey, we'll roll with it. Doug and his team have also concocted a new way to tell stories on the internet. It's pretty incredible, and I highly suggest checking out the piece where they introduce this idea. It's really interactive. Check the show notes for the link. Doug and I are both speaking at Content Marketing World this year, and you can use the promo code UNTHINKABLE in all caps to get $100 off your ticket. That's unthinkable in all caps for a hundred bucks off your Content Marketing World ticket. Go to contentmarketingworld.com. Ah, Doug Kessler. That guy does exceptional work. And he trusts his intuition to succeed. Do you? Do you?